Great. So like we said, we have arrived at the final Sunday for 2019. Time has certainly flown. I think Jay and I and our two little girls, we have now been on island for six months, almost going on seven months. Uh, it's just been uh, amazing, a roller coaster, but, uh, but wonderful. And so I, I think we've also arrived at the, the perfect text the perfect uh, portion of Scripture as we journey through uh, Colossians, uh, a portion of Scripture that might help us explain why some things went wrong uh, this past year in terms of maybe the decisions we made or the choices we made or the motivations uh, underneath those decisions and those choices, but also a portion of Scripture that can really help us, that can really equip us uh, for the year ahead because we're going to be talking about this, how we can win the war on sin how we can win the war on sin. So firstly, no one likes to use the word sin anymore. You know, no one goes home and says, hey, honey, I sinned today. You know, we say stuff like, hey, you know, I'm not perfect. Uh, I made a couple of mistakes. Uh, you know, when you, when you move the decimal place into the wrong place, that's a mistake. But when you embezzle millions, that's not a mistake. That's just a pure sin, right? Uh, you know, and when you make excuses to not go somewhere or not to do something because you don't want to go there, it's not an excuse, it's just a, a lie. And so, you know, having an affair, that, that's not a mistake, things like that. So, so whether you're here as a Christian or not a Christian, can we all just simply confess that we all do, we all willfully do wrong things at times, we all willfully, we can say the word sin sometimes. And so the problem with us as Christians, we actually have a, a heightened sense, a heightened conscious uh, to sin. And so when we do sin, we feel lousy about ourselves, we feel guilty. And if we're not aware of the gospel, and if we don't understand the implications of the gospel, we will most likely fall into traps in trying to overcome the sin in our lives. And this is exactly what was happening back in the little church in Colossus, way back in the first century, where these, these weird and, and wonderful false teachers were infiltrating the church there. And amongst other things, they were trying to tell the Colossian believers how to overcome the sin in their lives, how to live holy lives, how to overcome the sinful inclinations in their lives. And so just by way of reminder, Paul warned them and he said, hey, listen, they're going to come along with all of their, their fanciful theology and false doctrines, and they're going to, with all of their mystical knowledge, and they're going to say, you know, don't do this, don't do that, you need to start worshiping this, it can't just be about Jesus. But here's how Paul concluded on this deceptive religion and this deceptive mysticism. You can have a look at it, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. He says this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So they're not, it's not going to be stupid, they're, it's going to entice you. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism. Ascetism as in go and hide away from society, go and hide away from, from culture so that you are not influenced, that you don't sin. And then he says, and severity to the body. So what some of them would do is that they say, you have to torture your body because your, your spiritual condition is perfect, but your body is full of, is evil. And so they're saying you have to torture your body to get it into alignment with your spirit and all of these other fanciful things. But here's what Paul says. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
All of those things and all of the false doctrines, all of the religions out there, all of the cults out there, they have no power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is another way of saying that sinful nature in us that makes us sin and want to sin. They're not going to help you. They're not going to help you wage war on your sin. And so what we're going to see in our text today is that Paul sticks with his overriding truth that we've seen throughout our series so far. And that is Jesus really is enough. Jesus really is enough for us to overcome the sin in our lives. In other words, he's saying there's something about Jesus. There's something about what Jesus accomplished for us. That is all we need, that is all we require to overcome the sin and our sinful inclinations, to live a life of glory and honor to God. So as we hit chapter 3 today, would you read with me the first 11 verses of chapter 3, Colossians. You can grab a Bible in front of you in those chair pockets, or you jump onto your Bible app, or you can follow on the screen above me. But I want you to see God's word for yourself. Don't take my word for it. See, here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul continues and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, that is key, we're going to keep coming back to that phrase. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, or for our American friends, the wrath of God is coming in uh, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and, having, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the, the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. And in all. Just a couple of little disclaimers. I'm probably not going to get to verse 11. We'll uh, tackle that a little later on. And so the context, like I said, is uh, legalistic and, and mystical practices. They're powerless to help us overcome the indulgence of the flesh. But what we're going to see here is Jesus is all we need to put off these sinful uh, behaviors and these sinful desires. Especially in the context of this passage, we're going to see three things. We can win the war on sin. You can see this on the flip side of your bulletins. We can win the war on sin by being born anew. Number two, putting off the old you. And then number three, putting on the new you. Let me just also slip this in. Chapter three marks a change in Paul's tactic in his letter. The first two chapters, he's, he's just been all about this incredible theology of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the preeminent one, Jesus is supreme, Jesus is all that you need. And now chapter, from chapter three on to the end of the book is now how do we respond? How do we live in light of this Jesus, this preeminent one who is all we need? 
And so he's saying our first response is overcoming our sin. So point number one, we can win the war on sin by being born anew. And there is no other way, Sunrise. I mean, you can walk into to books and books and, and book nook and, and you can go into Amazon and there are tons and tons of books that will tell you how to become a better version of you, how to become a better you. None of that will work, at least not in the long term. Because at the end of the day, you're still stuck with you. You need to become completely new. Paul's saying you need to become born again into a new person, a new person with a new position before God. And this is the very foundation of our strategy against sin. If we don't get this, if we don't get this foundational thing, we will always live in defeat. And that new position, that new position that we're born again into is one of victory. The war against our three big enemies of sin, death, and the devil have been accomplished, has already been accomplished by Jesus' atoning death on the cross for us. Remember Paul said earlier in chapter 2 verse 15, he said that Jesus put them to open shame by nailing them to the cross. This cross that was meant to be the end of Jesus, that was meant to shame Jesus, he turned it around, he flipped it around and ended up shaming them in humiliating defeat. And so through faith in Jesus and through faith in who he is and what he did on the cross, we get this victory applied to us. So Paul says it like this in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. This is key. If then you have been raised with Christ. Another way of saying it, have you been born again? In being born again, we die spiritually to the hold that sin, death, and the devil had over us. And we are raised to this new spiritual life in Jesus. And there is a past, and there is a present, and there is a future tense to the salvation that we have with Jesus or in Jesus. He says this. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice the past tense. He says, you, you have died. This is what he's been saying. You are now. You need to consider this. You need to renew your minds on the sunrise that you are dead to the power and authority that sin, death, and the devil once had over you. And then go to the, the future tense. He says, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's a, that's a promise. He's saying you will be in glory with Jesus when he returns at the end of the age. But, but what's going to guarantee that? What's going to ensure that? A, you, you have to have died with him. And then secondly, this. Look at the present tense. He says, your life right now, if you are a genuine born-again believer right here this morning, this is true of you. Your life right now is hidden with Christ in God, and He is your life. He is your very spiritual life. He's saying your life is safe and secure in the power and the presence of Christ in you, your hope of glory. Chapter 1, verse 27, he said, Christ in you, your hope of glory, your assurance of being in glory one day is your union with Jesus. That's what this doctrine is called. It's so vitally important, not only in terms of your identity, but in terms of your security as a believer. Now, I'm going to be pretty blunt. 
if you don't have this sunrise, if you don't have this, then you are not saved. B, you can not do anything else Paul tells us to do in this text. And C, you cannot win the war over your sin. But if you are in Christ, and Christ is in you by faith, then everything he achieved on the cross is credited to your account. And you have Christ himself within you. All of the resources of Christ, his power within you to begin to now live out what he achieved on that cross. We can say it like this. Christianity is fighting off sin from a place of victory so as to begin to experience that victory more and more in your life. It's not fighting off sin so as to hopefully achieve some sort of victory over it. That's the difference between gospel-centered Christianity and all of these other religions, all of these other faiths out there. We fight from a place of victory to ultimately enjoy that victory, whereas religion says, no, no, you need to fight for your victory and hopefully enjoy it at some point. Okay, so is that the end of the sermon? Cool. Jesus done it, done and dusted. Let's go have some coffee or some cold water. Or, or, or maybe some of you are thinking, okay, well, Jason, that's just it's a little bit awkward for me because I know that I'm born again. I know that Christ is in me and I'm in Christ, but I haven't experienced that much victory over my sin. So what Paul does now is he transitions to our responsibility to now live out this union with Jesus and to begin to experience this victory more and more. So go back to verse 1. Have a look at this. He says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, everything else in his entire argument hinges on that phrase. If you have been raised with Christ, if you have been born again, if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, then we can do this. Then we can take up our responsibility, which is this. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Is the problem that you're not experiencing this victory that Jesus accomplished for you over your sin, is it because you're still focusing, as Paul says here, on the things of this earth? which we will get to in the second point. Rather, Paul says, you should be doing two things, seeking and setting, seeking and setting. To win the war over your sin is to fight for your mind because we will always live out what we have sought after and what we are seeking after, what, we are, what our minds are fixated on. And what we are to seek and then ultimately fixate our minds on, he says, are things that are above where Christ is. But he doesn't stop there. He says, at the right hand of God. Why, why does he add that extra clause in there? He's telling us what our minds need to be renewed on, what our minds need to be shaped by so as to live it out. When someone places someone else at their right hand, what they're doing is recognizing or bestowing on that person the same authority, the same integrity, the same honor and power as himself. 
Now watch this. Ephesians 1 from verse 20. He raised him from the dead. So God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now what is so prestigious about that? What is so prestigious about that position? What is, what is so authoritative about it? Here comes the list. Verse 21. Far above all rule, not some rule, all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name, not just some names, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is united to his church. And Paul is saying, you need to fixate your mind on that Jesus. You need to seek and then set your mind on this Jesus. This Jesus who has supreme power, supreme authority over all things. Over all dominions, over all authorities. Not just in this age that we're currently living in, but also in the one to come. And he says everything, not some things, everything is under his feet. He has conquered everything. He's victorious over everything. Nothing is above him. Sunrise, you want to experience more and more victory over your sin? Then you need to fixate your mind on the victor of your sin, who just so happened has also caused you to be born anew so that you can begin to experience this. Just a quick word here to, to all of us, but especially the Christian who is struggling with sin or a particular sin. I want you to take comfort from what Paul is saying, specifically in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4 again. He says, When Christ, who is your life, appears. Okay, now if that is true of you, if you are born again, and like I say, Christ is in you, you're in Christ, then here comes a guarantee, here comes a promise. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Because no doubt there are times when you're feeling absolutely defeated by your sin. I mean, I, I, I totally get that. I, I think, like, when am I ever going to be done with this? When is, when, when is this issue going to not be a, an issue again? When is this ever not going to be there? And Paul is saying, hey, that day is coming. When Jesus returns, whenever that might be, at the end of the age, and he ushers in his glorious kingdom finally and fully, Paul says, if you're in him, you will be in that kingdom. And your sin won't be. See, what the cross of Jesus has done for us is that it's not only set us free from the penalty of our sin, Jesus took the full wrath of God on the cross in our place for us, he took care of the penalty of our sin. He also took care of the power of sin over our lives. We can now say no, but more on that in point number two. But the presence of sin will only be eradicated when he returns with his glorious kingdom. Now, some of you need to hear that. Because you know deep down inside of you, you are born again, but your sin is beating you down. And what I want to tell you is just to have some perspective, have some hope, have some eternal perspective. It's not always going to be like that. Because you're heading towards glory. 
because Jesus has taken care of the penalty of your sin, past, present, and future. He has taken care of the power of sin over you, and he will ultimately take care of the presence of your sin. Okay, so cool. In the meantime, it's carte blanche, right? We get to do what we want. Jesus is my ticket into glory. Sin is still around. I get to do whatever I want, and it's all grace and faith, right? It couldn't be more opposite than that. The person who has truly been born again should and can put off the old you. Point number two goes like this. We can win the war on sin by, point number two, put, putting off the old you. Paul says it like this, verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Okay, so let's tackle the first awkward question. Who is this old self, or what is this old self that Paul is talking about? Specifically, what characterizes this old self? He says in the last part of verse 9 there that this old self has practices. It has characteristics, which he then calls in verse 5 as earthly or as debased. And then he gives us two lists of, earth, of this earthly old you practices. And this by is... Um, by no means an exhaustive two lists, in case you were sitting there wondering, cool, um, you know, it doesn't apply to me. I think you would be lying to yourself, and you just have to ask your husband or your wife or your best friend, and they would tell you otherwise. The first group can be described as sins of desire, and the second one in verse 7 as sins of communication. So the first one is uh, sins of desire that, or, or, or sexual sins that, that lead to actions, Whereas the sins of communication most of the time are a response to an action or a, your reaction to something that happens to you. Now, as people, never mind just as Christians, we have a wonderful habit of justifying ourselves, wanting to, to pass the blame onto or blame shifting or pass it on to others. For instance, let's, let's pick on anger out of verse 7. So let's say you're stuck in horrible traffic and, or someone kind of takes you out in, in the traffic, you know, cuts you off or whatever it might be and you just simply explode. You know, there's, there's fists flying, there's maybe a couple of middle fingers, some uh, expletives and some well-choice sentences also going out the window. And uh, once you calm down as a Christian, you feel lousy, you feel bad. And so you get to the office, and the first thing you do is repent. No, no, the first thing you, you do when you get to the office, you find someone, and you tell them what happened in traffic so that they go, oh, well, I hope you told him off. I did. And so you feel better about yourself. You justify your actions. But look at the first part of verse 5. What does Paul say? He says, put to death what is earthly in the traffic. No, it doesn't say that. No, put to death what is in you. These earthly things or these old you characteristics are in you. The traffic just simply exposed what was already in you. 
How about sexual immorality or impurity? Pretty much whatever else is in verse 5. So let's say you're, you know, you're all alone at home, just you and your computer and the internet, or you, and, you, and you begin to click on things that you shouldn't click on, or you, you're home alone with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, or, or you're alone with a colleague that's getting way too friendly, and as they say, you know, one thing just led to the next. What do we do? Do we blame it on our circumstances? Oh, you know, it was all those external factors made me do it. Really? Did the internet really make you do it? Did your girlfriend or your boyfriend really make you do it, or that colleague? What we did was, we put ourselves in a position that simply aroused what was already in there. Think about it logically. If those earthly things were not in us and we were in those same positions, nothing would happen. So the second all-important question then is, what should we do with the old you? What should we do with these old earthly practices? Paul says, get violent. This is the only time a Christian is allowed to truly get violent. He says, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, in you, not in your wife, not in your friend, in you, it's your responsibility. He says in verse 8, he says, put them all away. You know, like the mafia boss says to his hitman, just take care of it. In other words, just just put them away. Apparently, that phrase in the Greek, put to death, is a, is a very strong phrase. It doesn't simply mean just, just suppress it. Just try and control it. It certainly doesn't mean, well, this is the way God made me. It doesn't mean, oh, well, my, my, my dad was like that, and his dad was like that, and his dad was like that. No, no, no. If you have been raised with Christ, put it to death. Exterminate your old life. Terminate your old life. That's what Paul is telling us. This great famous Puritan, John Owen, famously said this. He asked this. He said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then this rather famous clause. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. He goes on to say, why kill sin? Every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. Here we go. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, that joy that Jesus gives you. Number two, it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace, the comfort and peace that Jesus died for you to have. Another scholar, N.T. Wright, he said this of why Paul was so specific. Like, why was Paul so specific in naming certain things in these lists? He says this, There is importance in listing and naming these sins as Paul does in this section. He says, It is far easier to drift into a sin which one does not know by name than consciously to choose one whose very title should be repugnant to a Christian. It's interesting that some Christian counselors will actually make you enunciate the sin that you are struggling with. Because as soon as you say it, as soon as you specify it, you bring it out into the light. And the darkness can't hide it anymore. Now here comes the further motivation from Paul. 
It's important to know why we should kill our sin, why we should feel the gravity of it. Have a look at verses 6 and 7. He says, on account of these, these earthly practices, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So, so verse 6 is a warning. Verse 6 says, hey, this is how God sees your sin. This is how God, this is how important sin is to God. These are the lengths that he will go to. His wrath is coming against it. And verse 7 is a reminder this is the good news. Verse 7 is a reminder of who you were and therefore a self-analysis test. So verse 6, he says, God's wrath is coming because God is not only a God of grace, love, and mercy. He is those things, but he's also a God of justice, a God of holiness, and a God of righteousness. God cannot and he will not turn a blind eye to our sin. That would be to go against his very nature of holiness and, and justice. So judgment day is coming for all those who live perpetually in their sin through unbelief in Jesus, through unbelief in who he is and what he did on the cross for them. So it's a warning. Paul's saying, hey guys, do not take your sin lightly. This is how God views sin. That we, so much so that we will be eternally separated from him through unbelief in Jesus. Do not be flippant about your sin. But then look at verse 7. It's a reminder that the Colossian believers and you and I as true believers, this is how we used to be. Because the verse is in the past tense. It says, you once walked when you were living in them. This is how you used to live. This is what characterized your life in your pre-Jesus days. And so it's a little subtle test. Paul is saying, hey, make sure you're no longer walking in those ways. The apostle Peter would say, hey, hey, make sure your calling and election is sure. Make sure you are born again, that you're not living habitually like this. David Gerzik, another scholar, he says it like this. A true Christian cannot be comfortable in habitual sin. One who has been raised with Christ cannot be comfortable in habitual sin. He says, it is possible, though tragic, that these sins should occasionally mark a Christian's life, but they must not be a Christian's walk, their manner of living. They cannot be your lifestyle. A good sign that you, because we do trip up. It's like Paul is saying, these, these earthly practices are in us, and so they do trip us up. But when they do, do you hate it? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Those are good signs that you're not in your sin. That's a good sign that you are born anew, that that's no longer who you are. And so the motivation or the desire to put off the old self shows that you are no longer in your sin, but that you are in Christ. And here is the amazing, amazing news of the gospel. If you are in Christ, Jesus has already taken the full wrath of your sin upon himself. All of your sin, past, present, and future, he has taken it upon himself. That is why and that is how we can put off the old you. 
But now you might be feeling a little bit frustrated, thinking, yeah, but Paul hasn't really told us specifically, how do I take off the old me? And I was kind of thinking the same thing until I realized in the context of the passage, you put off the old you by putting on the new you. Last point goes like this. Point number three, we can win the war of our sin by putting on the new you. Now, I know it's hot, but write this down. This will save your life. If you are going to go skydiving, do not put on scuba gear. <laughs> Write that down. In the same way, if you are Clark Kent, do not leave the house without your blue spandex and your red cape. Here's why. We need to put on what is necessary to achieve your particular purpose. We need to be putting on what is necessary to achieve our particular purpose. That means as Christians who are born again, who are born anew, and we want to put off the old you, we have to be putting on the new you. To wage war against the old you, you have to put on the new you. Paul says it like this, verse 10. Put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So firstly, there's an instruction. Put it on. Sunrise, put on the new you. That means this is squarely in your court. The ball is on your side of the court. This is your responsibility. You can either obey this or disobey this, and then there are consequences to either way. But think about what he's saying, how he's saying this. There's no neutral you. There's not like, okay, this is the old Jason, this is neutral Jason, this is new Jason. No, no. If you are not putting on the new you, that means you're acting according to the old you. But if you are consciously putting on the new you, then you are living out according to the new you. There's no no man's land. There's no ceasefire section. No, it's all out war. You're either putting him on or you're putting him off. So where do I find this new me? Again, that's the good news of the gospel. You receive the new you at the moment of your salvation. The new, you is, uh, the new self is also described as, as God's seed or as God gives you a new heart, but essentially it's Christ's nature put within you. At the moment of your regeneration, the old sinful you died in terms of its ultimate power and ultimate authority over your life, and you received Christ's nature within you, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is God's gift to us. This is God's amazing gift to us by His grace at our new birth. But then Paul says, it's then our responsibility now to live according to this new you. Here's why he says this. Paul says, the new self is being renewed in the knowledge of Jesus our creator. It's being fashioned after the image of Jesus. Therefore, we begin to grow in the process of being conformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And here's the big kicker. Why is this so important? Why is this new nature not just simply a better version of you? Why is this simply not an, an upgrade? You know, Jason 2.0 or Bob 2.0. Because Jesus is the only one who has never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus, who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Can you imagine that? Think about all of your temptations. You don't have to say them out loud. Just 
Think about all of your temptations. Think about how often you fall into those temptations. Think how quickly we fall into those temptations. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was tempted just like us, yet he endured. He never sinned. You know, the crazy thing is so many people actually criticize Jesus for being unable to sympathize or identify with us in the things that we go through in life, our hardships, our temptations. But I think it's the other way around. We can't identify with him because you and I, we've all given in to our temptations at some points, meaning we don't know what it's like to endure to the very end, but he does. He endured to the very end with each and every single one of his temptations. He remained sinless. I mean, can you imagine that? And that's Paul's point. He's saying, yes, we need to grow in the image and likeness of Jesus, the one who is able to say no. Ray Steadman has such a simple yet profound way of illustrating it, and then I'll wrap things up. He says this, when I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be part of me all day, to go where, to go where I go and to do what I do. They cover me and make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere you go and that he act through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, here's your your homework. And uh, you put on your clothes. Maybe it's work clothes. Or maybe it's your gym clothes. Maybe some of you still got a couple of more days off, a week off, and you can just stay in your PJs. That's fine. But conscientiously and symbolically, would you also put on Jesus? Would you specifically and conscientiously seek Jesus and set your mind on Jesus? Because here's the thing. We don't quite know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can be fairly certain that there will be challenges and that there might even be some temptations. You might have an idea of what some of them might be. You might be challenged in the traffic tomorrow and you might be tempted to say some things that you shouldn't say or gesture in a certain way. Or you might be challenged by that annoying colleague of yours and be tempted to say something that you will regret later. You might be tempted to lie to your boss because you can foresee a certain situation coming. You might be tempted with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or in front of the internet when you're all alone. Whatever it might be, would you do this very, very simple thing? In that moment, would you look down at the shirt that you're wearing or the dress that you're wearing, whatever it might be, would you look down and say, as long as I'm wearing these clothes, I'm going to seek Jesus I'm going to set my mind on Jesus so as to put off the old me and to live out the new me. As long as I have clothes, as long as I wear clothes, I'm going to seek Jesus, fixate my mind on him so that I can put off the old me and live out the new me in him. Now, how much better does the prospect of 2020 sound when you say, I'm going to put on Jesus every single day 
so that I no longer live according to the old me. The old me no longer gets to influence my decisions and my choices and my actions and my reactions. But I'm going to set and seek and put my mind on Jesus to influence my life for our good and his glory. Amen. If you're worried that um, it's still a bit vague, Paul was very specific about the characteristics of the old. You don't worry. The second half of chapter 3, I think it's very specific about what this new you should look like. And so we'll tackle that in a week or two's time. But I would love to pray for you. In fact, I think we're going to conclude our service at this point. I don't want you all passing out. Um, So I'm going to pray for you. Uh, Pray for your New Year's. And then you're welcome to grab some refreshments. There's some water at the back. Um, But if you have to go, have a wonderful time. So Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this year. Lord, despite um, the old you maybe having a little bit too much influence in certain areas in our life, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. That by faith in you, through union, being united to you, we have a new self created after your image. I pray for every single one of us here. Would you help us renew our minds according to the new self so that we might live out that new us fashioned after you. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to do that? Would 2020 be a benchmark year in our lives where every day we put on Jesus, setting our minds on him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.